Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for listening to Walking Through the Book today. We invite you to take out your Bibles during our program. Uh, this was a special recording made at the Profitable for Teaching event, which is a lectureship uh, held near Russellville, Alabama, every year. For more information on that, you can go to ProfitableForTeaching.com. And this was sort of a panel discussion, and we encourage you to listen. Uh, again, want to encourage you to check out our website, NorthColumbusChristians.com, and also uh, GardenCityCOC.org, uh, where Bryant preaches. Also, we have some special guests today, and we will have their contact info as well. You can also email us at WalkingThroughTheBook at ProtonMail.com. We are excited to share this program with you. It was a very good discussion of Genesis 13 and 14. Genesis 14, 19 and 20. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram of God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. Walking through the book. I'm Stephen McCrary. I'm Bryant Bales. I'm Jeremy Hodges. I'm Brad Collins. I'm Stephen Russell. And we want to talk to you about the Bible. Uh, specifically, we want to talk to you today about Genesis 13 through 15. And we hope you'll uh, take out your Bible and study with us today, if at all possible. Uh, maybe you're uh, commuting. Maybe you don't really uh, have access to a Bible at this moment. And uh, if not, uh, maybe you can just sort of uh, listen on in to what we have to say today. We hope that it's useful for you today. Um, really thankful for your time uh, in listening to this podcast. want to kind of do a quick, couple of quick little shout-outs. Uh, remember our website, NorthColumbusChristians.com. Uh, we've got a couple of other podcasts on there. Uh, obviously, this is going to be a little bit of a different episode. We are uh, at Rustic Youth Camp uh, during an event called Profitable for Teaching. And uh, we're blessed to be joined by some extra voices in this episode and uh, grateful to have their uh, input uh, on on the show today. Um, We're going to be trying to go through Genesis 13 through 15. And then after that, we want to do maybe a little bit of a segment uh, just sort of talking to uh, each of our, I guess we could say special guests today. Um, But at any rate, we will... uh, we will begin at that point. We're going to start today reading the text itself because we want to impress upon uh, our listeners the importance of reading uh, the Bible and studying it, and how important that is. Um, and uh, how, how does our how do our shows typically go, right? Yeah. So we usually uh, we usually read the text and we kind of do a little bit of an overview of looking for themes that we see through the reading. Then uh, after we look at the overall themes, we try to get more specific and talk about. Um, some things that stuck out to us a little more specifically as we read through. And uh, we usually conclude as well looking for application. Um, because in Genesis, it's, it's a book where there's not, it's, it's not like a New Testament epistle. There aren't specific commandments that are given to us. But 
Um, what we've really noticed as we've read through this, if you've been listening, is Genesis being a historical book is still so rich in things that we can take away and apply. Um, so that's how we'll be trying to conclude uh, both this podcast and how we have been and will continue to as well. Very good. And uh, before we get into our reading, I, I guess it would be good for us to, uh, you know, for our guests to introduce themselves. Uh, uh, Jeremy, you want to tell the listeners uh, what you do and where you're from? Uh, well, I'm a preacher and I preach in the uh, kind of the DMV, which is an ironic naming for the, the, the district in Maryland and Virginia, where everywhere else it is the most frustrating place on earth. Uh, I am just north of D.C. on the Maryland side, and I preach for a congregation uh, called Willowcroft Church of Christ. I'm Brad Collins. I am from Athens, Alabama, and work uh, in Huntsville writing software for a uh, government contractor there. And I just, uh, I'm just here to tag along and, and uh, be in the company of a bunch of great guys. I'm uh, Stephen Russell, and uh, I preach in the Athens, Alabama area at a congregation called uh, Pepper Road Church of Christ. And, uh, and I am looking forward to uh, looking at the book with a couple of great guys. Uh, well. All right. If nothing else, let's go into our reading. Genesis chapter 13, and I'll be reading from the New American Standard Bible. So Abram went up from Egypt to the Negev, he and his wife and all that belonged to him and lot with him. Now Abram was very rich in livestock, in silver and in gold. And he went on his journeys from the Negev as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been at the beginning between Bethel and Ai, to the place of the altar which he had made there formerly, and Abram called on the name of the Lord. Now Lot, who went with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents, and the land could not sustain them while dwelling together, for their possessions were so great they were not able to remain together. And there was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. Now the Canaanite and the Perizzite were dwelling then in the land. So Abram said to Lot, Please let there be no strife between you and me, nor between my herdsmen and your herdsmen, for we are brothers. It is not the whole land before you. Please separate from me. If to the left, then I will go to the right, or if to the right, then I will go to the left. Lot lifted up his eyes and saw the valley of the Jordan, that it was well watered everywhere. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt, as you go to Zoar. So Lot chose for himself all the valley of the Jordan, and Lot journeyed eastward. Thus they separated from each other. Abram settled in the land of Canaan, while Lot settled in the cities of the valley, and moved his tents as far as Sodom. And the men of Sodom were wicked exceedingly, and sinners against the Lord. The Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, Now lift up your eyes and look to the place where you are, northward, southward, eastward, and westward. 
For all the land which you see, I will give it to you and to your descendants forever. I will make your descendants as the dust of the earth, so that if anyone can number the dust of the earth, then your descendants can also be numbered. Arise, walk about the land through its length and breadth, for I will give it to you. Then Abram moved his tent and came to dwell, and came and dwelt by the oaks of Mamre, which are in Hebron, and there he built an altar to the Lord. Genesis chapter 14, verses 1 through 12. I'll be reading from the New King James Version. And it came to pass in the days of Amraphel, king of Shinar, Arioch, king of Elisar, Kedar Laomer, king of Elam, and Tidal, king of nations, that they made war with Berah, king of Sodom, Bisha, king of Gomorrah, Shinab, king of Admah, Shemaber, king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is, Zoar. All these joined together in the valley of Sidim, that is, the Salt Sea. Twelve years they served Kedar Lomer, and in the thirteenth year they rebelled. In the fourteenth year, Kedar Laomer and the kings that were with him came and attacked the Rephaim in Ashtaroth Karnaim, the Zuzim in Ham, and the Emim in Shaveh Kiriathaim, and the Horites in the mountains of Seir, as far as El Paran, which is by the wilderness. Then they turned back and came to En Mishpat, that is Kadesh, and attacked all the country of the Amalekites, and also the Amorites who dwelt in Hazazon Tamar. And the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, the king of Admah, the king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar, went out and joined together in battle in the valley of Sidim against Kedorlaomer, king of Elam, Tidal, king of nations, Amraphel, king of Shinar, and Aryoch, king of Elisar, four kings against five. Now the valley of Sidim was full of asphalt pits, and the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled. Some fell there, and the remainder fled to the mountains. Then they took all the goods of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their provisions and went their way. They also took Lot, Abram's brother's son, who dwelt in Sodom, and his goods, and departed. Genesis chapter 14, verses 13 through 24. And I'll be reading from the New American Standard Version. Then a fugitive came and told Abram the Hebrew. Now he was living by the oaks of Mamre, the Amorite, brother of Eshcol, the brother of Aner, and these were the allies with Abram. When Abram heard that his relative had been taken captive, he let out his trained men, born in his house, 318, and went in pursuit as far as Dan. He divided his forces against them by night, he and his servants, and defeated them, and pursued them as far as Hobah, which is north of Damascus. He brought back all the goods, and also brought back his relative Lot with his possessions, and also the women and the people. Then, after his return from the defeat of Kedor Leomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him in the valley of Shaveh, that is, the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. Now he was a priest of God Most High. He blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram of God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. He gave him a tenth of all. The king of Sodom, Sodom said to Abram, Give the people to me and take the goods for yourself. Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have sworn to the Lord God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, that I will not take a thread or a sandal thong or anything that is yours, for fear you would say, 
I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing except what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me, Aner, Eshkol, and Mamre. Let them take their share. So in this section of the show, we want to talk about just some initial observations from the reading, some things that specifically uh, popped out to us as we were reading and considering these things together. And uh, gentlemen? I know a lot of people have made a, a great deal about whether it was an act of faithlessness on the part of Abram and Lot to separate from one another, but I don't think there's anything in the text that says that. However, I do think that there is something that is uh, interesting from a couple of different perspectives that Lot decides that he's going to go down near Sodom. Whether or not he knew the spiritual condition of Sodom at that time, certainly the text indicates that this is going to be something that is a kind of a plot point. I say a lot that, uh, that just because the Bible is not fiction does not mean it's not well written, but we have something that is a kind of a narrative whole. The fact that he moves down near this place and the text takes the time to tell us that this is a place where the people there uh, are, are morally um, reprobates and that that's going to become something that becomes a big part of Abram's future. Uh, yeah, um, in fact, I would say it's uh, interesting that being told in hindsight, it, it goes ahead and reminds us that um, of the destruction that's coming when it says that this was before Sodom and Gomorrah had been destroyed. And so indicating uh, that this is being told to people who are already familiar with where this story ends up. Um, and, uh, you know, the Gospels are told that way in the New Testament, that this is this is being told in hindsight. An another thing, uh, backing up to the beginning of the story, it, it begins by telling us that the separation is a result of how blessed Abraham is or Abram at this point is. Mm -hmm. And that theme continues. Um, not only the, the blessings that tell us, you know, he's rich and, and uh, silver and gold and livestock. And then um, as we get on into 14, he is uh, blessed enough that he is able to raise, uh, you know, his personal army, you might say, and go uh, protect his nephew. And so, so I think in, in the midst of all the rest of this story, we're getting a picture of just how blessed Abram is already by God. Not only does he raise his own private army, these people are born in his house, so he has enough people that are his own people. He doesn't raise them. This is his people. But him and what is kind of the local posse, they're able to take on these invaders who come from several countries away. That is a fantastic uh, bit of information for us. And kind of on that note, one thing that we've noted, Stephen, is we've kind of looked at Abraham already. We looked at chapter 12 and the nature of God's grace in that chapter, how even though Abram was at fault and uh, the Pharaoh was not, Pharaoh was punished and Abram was rewarded because of God's covenant with them. Um, I think you see grace in a lot of different ways in 13 and 14. So Stephen just mentioned that 
Abraham was very wealthy at the beginning of this chapter. And in Deuteronomy 32, 15, I think it's interesting how different Abram is compared to the physical nation of Israel. Uh, Deuteronomy 32, 15 is where it says, Jeshurun grew fat and kicked. So when they were blessed, they forgot God and forsook him. Yet Abram was very rich in verse 2 in livestock, silver and gold. And yet it proceeds immediately talking about how he returned back to where he came from and called on the name of the Lord. And that shows that Abram, Abram's heart could not be turned away from the Lord by material things or carnal things. Um, and then you look at the end of chapter 14 where he has this great victory where he could exalt himself and he refuses to receive anything from the king of Sodom who comes to meet him. And he even says in verse 22 that he actually swore an oath to the Lord not to take anything from that king. Uh, and then he also says in verse 24, you know, just let the strangers uh, receive something, let them have their portion. But for him, he didn't want anyone to think that they had made him rich. Um, so just how Abram responds to the grace of God is, is such an incredible example. And it's, again, it's so different than what you see in the story of Israel as it continues and it really seems to model why in the New Testament, there's so many references back to Abraham's faith as a model, which ultimately refers to the nature of his trust, his heart that he had toward the Lord that drew him to the Lord in every circumstance, which is interesting. You know, we don't typically think of Sodom and Gomorrah as uh, places that God showed any grace and yet, if you go back, now, I don't think that this is the entire import of this statement. But back in chapter 12, God tells Abraham, I will bless you and make your name great, and you shall be a blessing. Mm. Sodom and Gomorrah got a reprieve here. Mm. Mm. They, they were looted. They were routed. And yet, because of Abraham, who was blessed by God, they got a bit of a reprieve. Interesting. Only because Abraham had a family member there that he cared about. And because of Abraham's tie to Sodom and Gomorrah, he rescued them. Mm. Uh, and, and we look at places, for instance, like Revelation, where, where things are happening that are supposed to, or, or in places in the prophets, where things are happening and God says, look, you're supposed to look at these bad things and that's supposed to be a wake-up call to you. Mm. And of course, it's, it's tragic that Sodom and Gomorrah mm. could not have taken this as a, a wake-up call. It is interesting. You see the description of Sodom and Gomorrah as being, I mean, it sounds like a really nice place, you know, and, and so you can mm -hmm. understand the appeal to Lot. Uh, but of course, the if they've got the right location of it today, it is a barren place uh, near the Dead Sea. Um, and so it's it's really... It, 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 there are a lot of lessons there. Really, and, and I think in the application part, we're going to come back to this point, but that Lot's journey to Sodom begins so innocently. Um, and, and really, there's a lot of warmth, I think, between Abram and Lot in this moment. Because, um, you know, in verse 8, let there be no strife between you and me, between my herdsmen and your herdsmen, for we are brethren. You know, that's it's a pretty important thing, it seems, to Abram. And... Uh, Maybe we'll try to develop that a little bit more in the next few segments. Anything else? Yeah. When it comes to the, the way that they divide up the spoil, I find it very fascinating that here you have the king of Sodom who is offering for Abraham, or Abram in this case, to take all of the monetary-oriented possessions. 
and he takes the people, as if people were a spoil. When you see what happens to Sodom and Gomorrah later on, and the way that they talk about any uh, strangers being in their city as being something that needs to become community property in kind of a sexual manner, it's about ownership of people. Mm. And so there's a mindset on the part of the leadership that humans are spoiled. And Abraham, uh, in this very kind of interesting way, he doesn't have any part of that. He's, he won't. He says, I'm not, I'm not going to engage in that kind of thing. Uh, he has his reasons, of course, and he talks about that. But he has the opportunity to make a kind of a moral decision here uh, to go back on his ethics, and he won't do it. Yeah, there's some really great observations. Um, does anybody else have anything uh, just observation-wise before we go into the deeper themes of of these chapters? Would you consider the Melchizedek thing a deeper theme? Well, yeah. <laughs> I mean, maybe we'll leave that one for that. Then. I mean, if you have some like little things, like I mean, sometimes I, I'm, I'm going to edit this out, but sometimes in this section, like we'll point out things that just seem odd or funny to us sometimes too, mm-hmm. and I, which I think that's healthy to do. Get that out of the way. I, I also like to get out any kind of speculation out of the way. You know, some have speculated this about this, but um, so, but. I think the segmented aspect of the show is, is, a, is a benefit. Uh, I guess I do have one observation along that lines. Uh, wow, there was nobody named George or Bill or Bob apparently back then. <laughs> that was a mouthful. Chapter 14. <laughs> and, and yet there, there are a lot of names and they are all named. And, uh, and, mm. and, and there are constant, constant mm. reminders throughout this historical narrative that it is indeed just that, a historical narrative. It doesn't say... He, he went and fought the king of the north uh, and the, the great king of the west. It, it names people and places uh, very thoroughly. Mm. And, uh, and so that's concrete uh, in a historical narrative. That's mm. a great point. It's not, it's not the Wicked Witch of the East or, you know, some fairy story. And, uh, and, and of course, you think back to, you know, again, if Moses is the one writing this book, how easy would it have been for people of his time to know about some of these things? I mean, this is still post-flood. And so uh, that those details might have been able to uh, to be looked at and checked up on. I mean, it's kind of like, it's kind of like what, what uh, Paul says about Jesus' resurrection. Hey, you know, if you don't believe me, check with these other people that saw him. Well, along those lines, he actually relies on the reading audience later on to be familiar with some of the locations because he talks about, and this was back when it was all green. There was a time when that place, that big old salt valley, that was all mm-hmm. green. Mm-hmm. And then also he na- he's using later name uh, place names like Dan. Mm-hmm. And so here you have a reminder that the first readers of this were actually those who were reading, uh, they're getting the law. So Genesis is a part of the law, not just because it's in the first five books, but the first people who were reading Genesis or hearing Genesis read to them were people who were given the law. And so you have places like Dan uh, later on, uh, as mentioned.
so this is uh, this is a section where uh, I want to uh, think about uh, some of the deeper themes that are going on in uh, these chapters. How do they relate to the story of the Bible in in its whole? You know, a lot of people will want to emphasize that the Bible is indeed individual books put together, and it certainly is, and we do need to appreciate that. But we also need to appreciate the context of the Bible. There is such a thing. And uh, so, so what are these, uh, gentlemen, what are, what are some things that, uh, you know, really in these two chapters seem to speak toward the future of the story that we see being laid out? Uh, what are some things that really uh, seem significant going forward? Well, you have uh, Abraham now being separated from the last of his family that he took with him. So the, the story is really going to focus in on Abraham alone. Uh, well, at least once we get past Genesis 19, we're, we're not going to hear from Lot anymore. It's just going to be Abraham and him alone in large part. You know, that's a fantastic point because, you know, Bryant, we've been talking about through Genesis, and you brought this up multiple times, how Genesis is indeed a book of divisions yep. where you see people dividing and, you know, the, the, this constant sort of pulling apart of things and people. And uh, I guess you could say this kind of falls under that. Yeah. I mean, you, you do see that over and over again in Genesis, you know, and you notice in verse nine, uh, you look at verse 11 and you look at verse 14, where it's emphasized the word separate or separated. Uh, so verse nine says, please separate from me. Verse 11 says they separate from each other. And then verse 14 says, after a lot, it's separated from him. And it's interesting, speaking of that with the greater context of the Bible, Lot was blessed because of his relation to Abram, but a part of God's faithfulness to Abram, because you notice in verse 14 and forward, he restates the covenantal promise to Abram after they've divided. So a part of that covenant is it's not Abram and Lot sharing the covenantal blessing. It's Abram. And I think about that even with the physical nation of Israel, the greater context of what God did eternally with bringing out the remnants of those of faith, Israel as a physical nation was very blessed for having any kind of association with Abram, but they were not God's true chosen people. They were just around God's true chosen people. And what God did masterfully is he separated out those who were related only by the flesh and he preserved those who were of Abraham and excluded all the blessings to them. So you just, you see this pattern over and over again of God masterfully separating and reconfirming the promise to his intended people through the larger aspect of the story. I, I, I would um, add to that uh, along those lines that God, um, it, it not only separates physically and actually that's, mm. that separation is occurring, uh, but it separates in the, in the story it's telling. Mm. So um, when we get the separation back in Genesis chapter 11, um, we, we hear in 10, chapter 10, where all those people end up, but we're only concerned about the sons of Shem. Mm -hmm. Specifically, we're concerned mm -hmm. about Abraham. And so our focus is drawn to what God wants our focus to be on. Mm -hmm. um, and so uh, even though Lot comes into the story for a moment, the focus never is on Lot, mm -hmm. um, and, uh, except by comparison, uh, you might say. And in fact, I think as you look at these two chapters, they lead us to an interaction between Abram and Melchizedek. Mm. 
And without trying to jump ahead, I don't think this is jumping ahead because I think it's quite possible this is a setup. Uh, the whole story is being told so that we might have an interaction with Melchizedek. Mm. Otherwise, the Hebrews, ref- the Hebrews reference to the mm. uh, Christ being a high priest in the order of Melchizedek is a useless reference. And so we come in contact, you know, here's a way for God to introduce this man to us. Mm. And and we don't get hardly anything about mm. this man except this. Right. And so it could be that this story is here for the express purpose or at least for a very primary purpose of getting us to Melchizedek mm. and just coming in contact with him so God could set the stage. And I think there are several places where God does that. You'll just get a a Mm -hmm. hint of Mm -hmm. something in the Old Testament that you don't get the reality or the Mm -hmm. full picture of till we get to the New Testament. And that lack of information really is part of the the Hebrew writer's point. Mm -hmm. He says he kind of pops up out of nowhere. He has no lineage whatsoever. No one knows anything about him. We don't know about his life. We don't know about his death. And he is a mystery on purpose. And it is the mystery of this character that is part of the Hebrew uh, writer's point. He says, this comes out of nowhere. And that was on purpose Mm -hmm. and speaks to the Holy Spirit's ultimate uh, purpose in providing the story because he's going to come back to it later. So without the New Testament, you really don't even have any reason why this is here. And it sticks out like a sore thumb. And it just is one of those weird things. It is it is of interest, but it, it doesn't really have any connection to anything until you get to Hebrews. Mm. Yeah. yeah. So on that note, uh, I think another big theme to point out is chapter 14, the beginning of it. You know, it's almost like, why is there so much space wasted with the details of this battle that all these kings are going through? Like, why not just skip to Abraham or Abram still rescuing Lot? But I think there's a theme in chapter 14, along with the covenant, the grace that results in exaltation. So these four kings defeated the five, right? So there is this big battle of all these great kings in Canaan very powerful, and the four kings defeated the five. Abram, in verse uh, 14, takes 318 men, and he defeats all the kings who had already won over the other kings. So Abraham's greater and higher than all of them. Well, then comes Melchizedek, who comes out and blesses Abram, and the lesser is blessed by the greater. So Melchizedek is greater than Abram. So he's exalted even above Abram. But then look who who Melchizedek exalts in verse 19 and 20. Blessed be God most high. So God is higher than Melchizedek. Melchizedek's higher than Abram. Abram is higher, higher than all these other kings of all these nations who are higher than all these other kings. And think about it. That's the story of the true remnant as well. Uh, I think about Daniel and the prophecies that were made that there would be a stone cut out from a mountain that would shatter these great world powers And that stone would become the true power exalted that would then be exalted over those nations that would have God exalted over them and God ends up reigning over all. So you've got this period of exaltation, uh, not period, but the sequence of exaltation that you see repeated as well. Um, Just like the uh, other themes you saw in verse uh, chapter 13 repeating as well. And not only does he defeat them, he travels a good long way to catch up with them. Mm. He's north of Damascus when he catches up with these guys, which mm. is a pretty significant uh, 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 
travel time. So he is, it's not like he's fresh. They didn't just wake up that morning and, and go out to battle. No, they, they traveled a good long ways before they were able to, to catch up with the, the retreating army. Mm-hmm. And on that note, uh, just if you're not in the habit, as you study your Bible, of taking a look at those maps in the back, in the back of your Bible, mm. uh, do that when you run across these, these, uh, these uh, place names. As Stephen was saying, these, these are real people who lived in real places, and those places are named for a reason. And one of those reasons is so that you can ferret out details like Jeremy just mentioned. You know, on, on the subject of Melchizedek, it may be useful uh, as well for us to just deal with a little of the misconceptions that are out there that, that maybe, you know, some of us as preachers and teachers of God's word have run into. Um, what are, what are some of the misconceptions about Melchizedek that, that kind of come out sometimes? I think one of the main, uh, misconceptions that I run into is the, um, the literal interpretation that he is, uh, eternal. Um, you know, that, and, and I think what Jeremy said earlier, helps deal with that. Um, it is a perceived uh, eternity. It is a, a perceived lack of beginning and lack of ending that the Hebrew writer picks up on to point to the actual without beginning, without beginning, without end of Jesus. And so, so um, you know, what, you're not going to find Melchizedek walking around somewhere and, <laughs> and, and, and so forth. But what, what you have is, uh, you know, when is the end of Melchizedek told to us? Nowhere. Well, in that same way, obviously, the end of Christ's uh, priesthood is nowhere to be found. Um, that doesn't mean that it never did end, that he didn't die. It just, it's, it's just as far as it's presented to us, mm. uh, it has no ending. Right. Right. Like written in just such a way. Right. Which makes it a shadow of the reality. Right. Right, and so that's that's what Melchizedek becomes. He becomes mm. a type. He becomes mm. a, a shadow, but not the real thing. Um, and so I think that's you know a misconception. You know, the literal language that is used prophetically. You know, and so that's the nature of that. Mm. And it it is similar. It's reminiscent when you hear things like that. To oh, uh, was Jesus the one in the fiery furnace with you know Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? Maybe, but you know the there's nothing in the text to actually confirm that. And, and you know, I, I try to bring that up to our listeners as much as possible because, you know, we have to make sure that we're limiting ourselves to what the text provides. Um, and while, again, I mean, I think even in the show, we've indulged in healthy speculation from time to time. But, uh, but it's, it's so important to uh, make our stand on the word. And when we try to add in these other things, it just it goes... Uh, you're adding something that, that you're, you're standing not on solid ground. You're standing on something that really needs to be held up by some other source, typically. I, I, th- I think, uh, you know, any, any types and shadows, the tabernacle, for instance, is, is referred to as a, mm-hmm. as a copy. Mm-hmm. Um, that doesn't mean that, that you go and read about the literal tabernacle and that that's what heaven's going to look like. Mm-hmm. Um, rather, there are uh, elements there that represent the elements of heaven. And, and so, uh, same here, elements of Melchizedek that represent elements of, of the Christ priest, priesthood. And I think that's a good point because usually when I found somebody kind of 
overindulging and thinking about Melchizedek, they're not actually focusing on the points the Hebrew writer is making. Yes. You know, they're kind of going off into unknown territory with some kind of fascination for something that's not actually stated. When what is stated in Hebrew 7, if that would be focused on, is much more fascinating and astonishing than anything that you could delve into that God hasn't actually said or specified. Because the point in Hebrew 7 is not the glory of Melchizedek. Just like Stephen was saying, it's the glory of the one whom is the fulfillment of that type. That's the one we need to focus on. I find it fascinating that this place where uh, you have this conversation where this altar is and the restatement of the promise is, is uh, by the oaks of Mamre, which are in Hebron. And that, that phrase comes up so many times throughout mm-hmm. not only his life, but the life of the children of Israel. You have people who were buried near there. So that this region... Uh, just right around here is significant for a a lot of different reasons. And uh, when talking about this kind of promise that we're going to see developing in Abram's life and later on Abraham, especially as we start in verse 15, where this starts to to really come to the fore, uh, the land promise is just as important uh, as the, 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 the people promise. All these people are going to come for him. They're going to be like sand on the seashore. But he says, I want you to take a look. This whole land is all going to belong to you. Mm-hmm. And where he says this is a very significant uh, location being uh, Hebron, uh, which can, continues to feature prominently in the, the account of Israel. we come to uh, the end of the show where we try to talk about some applications of the text. You know, we can go to Bible studies, we can read the Bible and study the Bible, we can go to church services and listen to a million sermons, but if we're not applying the text to ourselves, we're not really getting any kind of benefit. And uh, we want to encourage you to think about these things as we as we can we consider them for ourselves. We're applying these things to ourselves, hopefully, just as much as as we're helping you to apply them, hopefully. I did want to kind of start off with something that, again, I really think is significant. Um, When you see that Lot and Abram's people really uh, get to the point where the land can't support them, you've got only a finite amount for them there, it would seem, and they're not really able to live together. And Abram takes it upon himself to say, let's not fight over this. Let's separate. Um, What does that mean in terms of uh, how we behave and react with each other today, whether it's in our families, whether it's in our workplaces, or uh, whether it's in in our churches? Well, I guess one of the more straightforward ones uh, is when your church gets too big, maybe you should split. I say that kind of in jest, but I also say that with a little bit of truth. It is easy to think that we need to continue to grow up and to to be bigger and bigger and bigger, and and we're outgrowing our parking lot, and we're outgrowing, and those things are are great because that means that more souls are coming to the Lord, and that's great. But there is also a time in which we need to say, okay, this is an opportunity. So maybe we have some people, a lot, a, a large chunk of our congregation is coming up from another area. 
So maybe as opposed to continuing to all, you know, stake our claim in the same area, it's not wrong to decide, well, maybe we can do something else. Maybe it's time to let another congregation begin in another place. And they do it amicably. They're not uh, harsh on each other. They're not, um, we can second guess a lot of Lot's decisions, uh, certainly. And I think there's a little bit of that, but not a lot of it. Uh, but there's no faithlessness in them splitting up. They are just making a practical decision based on the lay of the land. And I also think there, it's not just practical from the um, from the lay of the land, but practical to um, a recognition of human interaction. Mm-hmm. Um, and so this is the likely thing to happen. There are likely to be disagreements. There are likely to be um, there's likely to be discord. And and the the foresight of Abram to look and mm. say, I see a problem that's going to come. Mm. Let's let's head that off before it gets there. Let's do something about it now. Um, it is always easier to look for a solution before things get hot, mm. but before things get uh, before emotions get involved. And so when we are, are able to with foresight see potential discord. And and handle it in a way to avoid that discord before it gets here. You're always going to be able to come up with better solutions. Mm. Um, and so I think there's wisdom that we see in, in Abram in that. Mm. I love how Abram. Well, two things. Number one, what does it give as his reason? What is his rationale to Lot for why they need to separate? For we are brethren. Mm. Abram put that relationship above anything else. Mm. And then following on to that, Jeremy, you said this is not a faithless decision. The fact that Abram just goes on to say, listen, you go one direction, I'll go the other, or or vice versa. Abram didn't seem to have any doubt that God was going to take care of Mm. both him Mm. and of Lot, regardless of which way they went. Mm. Just He was more concerned with preserving their relationship and not letting something get in the way of that. And when you talk about how lush the Canaan Valley was at this time, um, obviously before the incident with Sodom and Gomorrah, that meant that he was likely up in the more hilly regions. Now, those hills are not uh, kind of the, the lush hills of Dublin, Ireland, in our minds that can be there. It's, this is a little bit of a, a, scru- a scruffier bit of land. So, so Abram does uh, – he, he doesn't hurt for the decision, but it would easily – it would be easy for him to have a bad attitude about Lot after this decision. You know, sometimes we tell someone else to choose, but we really want a certain choice to come come out of that. But when Lot's in trouble, he is right there for he is right there for his uh, his brother, his nephew. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Guys, I'm not used to this Bible yet. Um, first of all, I hear that there are divisions among you. Oh, first, first Corinthians, Corinthians chapter 11. 11. Oh, 11. Chapter 1, verse 11. I don't know why. I, oh, I'm sorry. I thought, first of all, I was in the first few chapters. No, he said uh, in chapter 1. I'm saying chapter 11. There, I think. There's that one, too, where you talk about divisions in the Lord's Divisions suffering. must come. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. That's the one you're talking no, that's about, right? A, that's, a, that's in chapter that's, 11. That's the one you're looking for? Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right. I'm going to edit that out to make myself appear <laughs> yeah. smarter. <laughs> Brad does that for my sermons every week. Yeah. yeah. That's <laughs> and wonderful. And your sermons make smarter. Yeah. It really does sometimes. <laughs> I'll do like a little voiceover. 
<laughs> no, 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 well, when I, when I call it out, go, no, 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 I mean this. And then right on, <laughs> he's like, no. or, or, you know, sometimes you, 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 you mean chapter 13, verse four, and you type three, verse four, something like that. Okay. Yeah. Edit the slide right quick. Yeah. yeah. So, so there's almost a double-sided coin to this in some ways. When you think about this and apply this to how we get along in churches today, uh, Paul in first Corinthians 11 in verse 18, he says, first of all, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and in part I believe it, for there must also be factions among you that those who are approved may be recognized among you. Hmm. Now, of course, in context, he's beginning to criticize them for the lack of really upholding the Lord's Supper in the way that, that, that God had handed, handed down for them. But what does that say? Uh, I think at least part of that is that not all divisions are necessarily bad. Um, of course, we see churches dividing all the time, though, and a lot of times that the reason for that division is carnal. Uh, a lot of the times the reason for that division is not really what we would call valid. Uh, but Jeremy brought up a valid uh, uh, situation. I mean, we're busting out of the building. There's really nothing we can do about that as far as population. Fire marshal is going to come down here and, you know, give us give us a headache. No. But uh, but then how about, you know, congregations that just it, it, it evolved to the point where you realize, hey, there's different ideologies under the same roof to the point that I don't think we can really work together properly. How do you head off that before it becomes a huge problem? I think a good example of of that, not at the level of doctrinal, but at the level of judgment, is uh, Paul and Barnabas uh, in uh, the latter part of Acts chapter 15 as they're preparing to go on the, the second journey. And uh, there is discord between them over the um, decision to take John Mark, and, and Paul is vehemently against it. And uh, and. Barnabas will not relent. He wants him to come. And, and, and I think we could make arguments on both sides of that that are reasonable. And so it's not a question of clear right and wrong. What is the correct thing here? Um, and, and we could easily find our sympathies moving in one direction or another, depending on how we're looking at that. And they didn't break fellowship from the standpoint of no longer considering each other brethren. But they did decide... It's probably going to be better if we work differently right now. Mm. You work that way and I'll work this way. I'll take Silas, you take John Mark. We go to different areas and so forth. And so I think sometimes you come to a point and you say, we just see different ways of going about this. Mm. It's not we, we believe different doctrine. That's a totally different thing. Now we're talking about fellowship questions. This is not a fellowship question in that case. And so I, I do think there are places where it's not just population and so forth, but rather a... I think we just have very different approaches, so different. Maybe it's better if we work separately. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think there's a wisdom in understanding when that happens to to divide without discord. Uh, and I think mm-hmm. Paul and Barnabas did manage that. Yeah. I think you're right. In both cases, you do have discord. Uh, what you 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 have happened in the Abram and the Abram and Lot situation is you've got fights that are going on between those people who work mm-hmm. for them. Mm-hmm. So there is some conflict going on. 
So there is a way to avoid further conflict that is not a necessarily a sinful decision. Mm-hmm. In the case of Paul and Barnabas, you do not have any statement from the Holy Spirit whatsoever about right and wrong. They just decided they're not going to argue about it anymore. In the case of Abram and Lot, you have the, the, the limitation of resources is only the, the spark that started some of the conflicts. It was only that's what they were arguing about, but you're right. It was really a, to avoid further conflict. And as Stephen said earlier, and so did Brian, you know, we're brothers. We don't want to fight about this. And so honestly, it's, it's okay sometimes for us to do different things, consider each other brothers in different places, and maintain the same respect. So that's well said, sir. I can imagine if, if you guys started having disagreements about how to do this podcast. <laughs> yeah. You might, Sorry, Brian. Steven, we're going to start my own podcast. <laughs> yeah. So. Yeah. Well, I mean, in, in, all, in all actuality, what you would want to do is do that before it actually caused a real fight. Right. So yes. walking before, through the before it caused <laughs> Before it caused a rift in your actual relationship, right. you might say, you know what, let's, uh, let, let's, let's, set, let's kill this podcast before we kill our brotherhood, <laughs> each other. But I hope you don't. <laughs> yeah. But it is interesting that we're, we're talking about this because that that resolution hardly ever seems to happen. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, what happens typically with Bible studies? Like, let's say a family and a mm-hmm. congregation decides, okay, we're going to have this Bible study for young people. We're going to try to keep this going. I, I Maybe I'll have different... Uh, uh, you know, we all have different experiences, but I've never known that to just stop at a point where you say, okay, we're going to stop this. You know, we're, we're done with this. You know, I, I think people are afraid of, of saying things like that when it may be valid. Like if you realize that it's not being productive anymore or if time is, you know, whatever reason it is, you know, um, but you know, usually those kind of studies just sort of fade away is what I find. Well, in this case, part of what engendered peace was the fact that Abram was ready to take the full brunt of what he was offering. Right. Mm -hmm. Uh, Going back to the Corinthians, which you guys mentioned earlier in chapter six, he says that lawsuits are already a loss for you. Mm -hmm. You lose when you go to court with somebody over something. And so he he, he asked them, he says, why not rather be wronged? That was Abram's attitude. Mm. He would rather be wrong. He said, there's two options here. One, I mean, he, he knew what the land looked like when he made the offer to Lot. Mm. He knew that there was an excellent chance that Lot was going to take the lush green valley and leave him up in the hills. And he said, that's fine with me, though. He made the decision to be, to be wronged and be okay with it before he ever offered that to Lot. Mm. And so he was fully expecting for that to be the case. And, and there's no there's no bitterness at all because when Lot gets into trouble later on, he's like, "Okay, man, I'm coming to get you," mm. you know. And 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 he he goes to what seems to be pretty pretty uh, intense lengths to to accomplish that, which I think speaks to the the genuine mm. the genuineness of Abram. Uh, a lot of times we will make an offer like that uh, with the expectation that, of course, they will defer to us. And give us the better part, mm. and then and then we're bitter because what we've made was not really a genuine offer. Mm. Um, and so here, Abram doesn't just make the offer, but he has the chance to prove that the offer truly was genuine. Mm. So that when he was given the the lesser of the two pieces of property, um, it's clear he didn't he took no offense. He meant it when he said, "You choose, and I'm fine. I will take the other." Right. And I think what you said about genuineness 
you see it more in Genesis 22 a little more clearly, but Abram obviously really loved Lot, but he loved God more. And you see that Abram was not unduly attached to anyone or anything. He could let go of anything or anyone if it was necessary for the greater will of God. I think that kind of gets into like what makes it so troubling to separate sometimes is I'm unduly attached to something like I shouldn't be. Um, And what you continuously see is Abram has a complete lack of idolatry in his heart. God continuously affirms that over and over again to the uttermost extreme. And it's apparent here, but it's more apparent in Genesis 22. So I think what solves that is oftentimes there are certain things that God uses to expose where my attachments attachments truly are. So like, for instance, if there's a Bible study that needs to end, if I'm going to keep that Bible study at the expense of my relationship with brethren, something's gone wrong and I'm unduly attached to something in an unnatural way. Mm. Or like if a congregation, you know, is getting too large and, um, you know, there's just a constant unwillingness when it's clearly beneficial to maybe separate out a little group and start another group. You just, you see in the scriptures that Abram loved God. And I think this is a point of application. Grace equips us to attach ourselves to people in ways no one else can while still being able to separate ourselves from them because we love God more. And that's Paul to the Corinthians. Think about 2 Corinthians. Paul loved those Corinthians in a way that was so far beyond what was normal or natural, yet he could still detach himself from them to where his faith was not based on their success. Yet he was so emotionally invested. It's extraordinary to read how God had attached him so closely to that church. But again, it wasn't an idolatrous attachment. It was an attachment that was based on the grace of God. And I think we see that here as well. Well, his belief in the God it ta- uh, is part of the, the blessing that Melchizedek gives. He says, blessed be Abram of God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. And so not only is God the most high mm. in the way that he's, it's mm. kind of a, an mm. odd phrasing. Mm. We don't see God most high everywhere. We see it in some places. Mm. But in this case, uh, God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. And that helps us to see, you know, Abram's mentality. Right. Not only is God the highest thing and therefore everything else is under that, but further than that, God owns everything. Mm. And so I can live up here in the rock and the scrub and, right. be, and be fine with that because God owns everything. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, just really quick on that. I was going to say it. You already see God fulfilling his promise in Genesis 12 because God is exalting his name through Abram's humility and his lack of idolatry gives God an opportunity to exalt himself through Abram, through Abram in all these different ways already, which is amazing. Um, back to that same passage here. Let me, uh, well, I'll give Stephen the credit for this because he, he mentioned a point like this in a sermon recently. If, if we read this account and there was nothing that Abraham had said about refusing the extra spoil uh, and saying, I don't want anybody to be able to say that I have made Abraham rich or Abram rich, um, would, would any of us, I mean, would, would we find that strange mm-hmm. if, if it just kept going and, and mm-hmm. Abraham had, had taken a bit of the spoil mm-hmm. uh, and said, well, thank you. Yeah, I, I pre- appreciate that you're grateful for my efforts in coming to save you. I, I, I think we would all think that would be just fine. And yet there are times when, when it, it may be prudent to go beyond the call of duty. Mm. It, it may be prudent on occasion. And this is just going to be a case by case situation uh, or a case by case basis. 
in which you evaluate the situation and think, I know I could do this, but let me, let me not exercise that liberty uh, for prudence sake. And we've been talking about Paul and the Corinthians. He, he's a classic example where he does not, he did not demand that the Corinthians support him uh, in return for preaching the gospel because he did not want that to get in the way of being able to preach the gospel to them, even though it was perfectly within his right. Mm. Is that comparable to Jesus refusing to take, you know, he's on the cross and they offer him like beforehand this stuff that will essentially help deaden the pain. I mean, maybe I'm, maybe I'm stretching on that point. I, I would, I think there is some uh, similarity there. The, the distinction I would make is I think there's potentially um, the need for Jesus to stay lucid. Uh, he has things to say yet. Mm. Right. And, uh, and so um, in a way, yes, I mean, he could have done that. But I also think that would have actually gotten in the way, uh, in a very specific way, of accomplishing what he had yet to accomplish. Mm. Um, but I think to, to Brad's point, I, I would say uh, another distinction here is that it sounds like Abraham has made a very specific promise because mm. he says, I mean, he gets down to the details. I'm not even taking a sandal thong from you. So, mm. um, you know, with regards to that, uh, the, the application or the thought that came to me um, is is that that total separation from the world. Mm-hmm. And, it, and it very distinctly reminds me of 2 Corinthians 6. So mm-hmm. why would you attach yourself to people? Why would you give, your, mm-hmm. give other people sway over you in a way that gives them any ownership, any, any right to tell you what to do or mm-hmm. you know, uh, unequally yoked, he calls it there. And that, that sort of seems like what Abraham's saying. I, mm-hmm. I don't want you to have any rights over me, any mm-hmm any undue influence over me. And we need to be careful that, that we don't give people uh, a, a hold over us. And there's a lot, a lot of ways we can do that. But money is a big one. Yeah. Verse 18 of chapter 13. I think it's interesting that Abram has riches, silver, gold, livestock. He, the promise of God is reconfirmed. And in verse 18, it says he moved his tent. So he didn't have some like giant log cabin. He didn't have his servants haul around bricks by rope, you know, or big carts. Like he was still living in a tent. He never forgot he was a pilgrim and a stranger with God in this land. You know, I never forgot it. He never stopped being a right. pilgrim. And, exactly. and so, so for all the promises, Abraham never, he, he had many blessings, had a lot of wealth. Right. But he never got out of tents. And that's, that's the thing is, it, this gets back to where is idolatry most evident? It's in our little decisions that display what's really manipulating our will. And I like how you point out the end of that, not even a sandal. There was nothing to manipulate Abraham's will except God's promise. Everything we see Abram do is entirely motivated in this context by the promises and the covenant of God. I think that attitude that you're talking about uh, in Abram, Abraham, uh, which he passes on to Isaac, uh, is also still evident when Jacob stands before the Pharaoh. Mm. Uh, and in uh, Genesis 47, verse 9, the Pharaoh has asked him how old he is, and Jacob says to Pharaoh, the days of the years of my pilgrimage mm. are 130 years. Few and evil have been the days of the years of my life. 
but that that pilgrimage, mm. he, he, the fact that he phrases it that way mm. means that it's it's still on his mind. That's the mm. way he's looking at this. Mm. I'd, I'd like to make one more observation about that that sandal thong, that detail, that small detail of not having the smallest sway. So it's not just I don't I don't want you to give me tremendous wealth. Mm. I don't want to take anything from mm. you mm. that might influence me. Mm. And I think about mm. that in the world and how much mm. the world does influence us. Yeah. Now here we might could say. Well, it doesn't look like Sodom, the king of Sodom is trying to influence Abraham. It doesn't matter. Yeah. It doesn't matter if that's what right. he's trying to do or not. Right. Sometimes we'll say Hollywood is trying to influence you, and I thoroughly believe they are. Mm. But even if they weren't trying, mm. the question is, are they? Right. And the question is, how much is too much? Mm. A sandal thong. Mm. I want none of your influence. Mm. I want I want none of your sway over me. Mm. And that's what God wants with us in the world yeah. is, is he wants none of that. Amen. Just as you said, put it all away. Nothing should hold sway over us except the promises of God. And so so we need to be about the business of rooting out yeah. whatever influence might turn our heart from God. Amen. Him using the figure of the sandalthon kind of reminds me of the 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 other side of that, uh, when you've got Bilaam uh, talking about, uh, to Balak, he says, even if you give me a, a, a house full of silver, wink, wink, you know, uh, in this case, in this case, Abraham, he uses his language to, to convey that it, he won't, he won't take anything at all. And he uses the smallest little, you know, nothing. And yeah. uh, it's, it's well said. Well, and, and think about Genesis 12 again, Abraham was so free from those influences from a few sentences from God, you know, and, and thinking about application, how much more have we received now than a few sentences of promises? How much more evident are the glory of these promises to us? How much more motivated should we be sort of when Jesus says something like, unless you forsake father, mother, brother, sister, houses, families, even your own life, we should look at that and be like, okay, that's, so reasonable, you know, if, is that really all it takes to get this, you know, cause it seems like Abram was willing to do that with these few sentences he had received from God, you know, and it just, it says a lot about what's manipulating my will. When I look at those things, Jesus says, and I think well, that's just a lot. Well, we, you know? we have distinct promises, uh, mm. uh, you know, seek ye first the kingdom of God, right? right. These things be added to you. We right. have, you know, you, you will not leave father or mother, but that you will have you Amen. Know, all of these. Right. And so, so it's not just that we've been given greater promises and, and greater commands, but but that we've given been given specific promises to go right. along with those commands. Yeah, right. If you give those things up, this is what I will give you in right. return. Right. This is this is what will happen. And so you, you, you have security in the face of those commands. Yeah. And it was seen in the practical ways he lived. You know, it wasn't just theory to Abram. Like it changed dramatically how he responded to situations like it was it was so evident like the hope was seen in how he lived i just think that's interesting he believed in the lord and was accounted in his righteousness yep amen abraham left everything he he left he left his his family uh although he took care of his family in the meantime of course which tells us so much he uh left the religion of his father and yet he gained 
the greater relationship with the true father and uh, just a lot of good things. Really appreciate y'all's involvement in this. Um, we want to do something a little bit special since this is a special episode of Walking Through the Book. Um, I've asked our guests to choose some passages or one passage uh, that really uh, helps uh, helps them to maybe stay motivated in their service to the Lord. Uh, something that maybe in, in tough times they look at and helps remind them uh, who they're supposed to be and who, who the Lord is and to keep them going. We figured that might be helpful for our listeners as well and helpful for me and Bryant. Yeah. So, Jeremy? Um, I've always felt very close to Jeremiah because uh, he's a he's a big old baby and he's a whiner. That's all mine. And some of the things that he says in the midst of his crying uh, really resonate with me, especially uh, maybe some of the early days of my preaching. And, and even now today, uh, I still need to review this, especially when I'm feeling sorry for myself. So keeping motivated, like you asked me, um, I think the hardship and keeping motivated is sometimes I throw myself a pity party. Mm-hmm. And so in Jeremiah chapter 20... Uh, starting in verse 7, uh, this whole section really, uh, all the way through 13 at least, um, um, the 14 through 18 gets into, you know, Jobian territory, but uh, but certainly 7 through 13, he says, O Yahweh, you have deceived me, and I was deceived. You have overcome me and prevailed. I have become a laughingstock all day long. Everyone mocks me. For each time I speak, I cry aloud. I proclaim violence and destruction because for me, the word of the Lord has resulted in reproach and derision all day long. But if I say I will not remember him or speak any more in his name, then in my heart, it becomes like a burning fire shut up in my bones and I am weary of holding it in and I cannot endure it. For I've heard the whispering of many terror on every side. Denounce him. Yes, let us denounce him. All my trusted friends watching for my fall say, perhaps he will be deceived so we may prevail against him and take our revenge on him. But Yahweh is with me like a dread champion. Therefore, my persecutors will stumble and will not prevail. They will be utterly ashamed because they have failed with an everlasting disgrace that will not be forgotten. Hmm. Yet, O Yahweh of hosts, you who test the righteous, who see the mind and the heart, Let me see your vengeance on them, for to you I have set forth my cause. Sing to Yahweh, praise Yahweh, for he has delivered the soul of the needy one from the hand of evildoers. Hmm. For me, that's a bit melodramatic in my case oftentimes, but that doesn't mean I don't feel sometimes very alone. Hmm. It doesn't make me feel any less uh, like things are difficult. And so this passage really gets to me, especially verse 9. If I say I will not remember his name or, or remember him or speak any more in his name, then my heart becomes like a burning fire shut up in my bones, and I am weary of holding in, and I cannot endure it. Um, I, Jennifer, my wife, is so great to me because when I get down about things, I talk about doing something else. She looks at me and she says, well, what else are you going to do? And part of that is what else can you do, which is true. <laughs> But further, she knows that I would do this, whether I was paid to do it or not. Mm. 
And so verses like that remember me why I started. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's very good. Thank you for sharing that. Um, can you tell our listeners a way to get in touch with you and maybe the website for the church that yeah, no. Um, the, we're in the D.C. area, and if you happen to be in D.C. visiting the nation's capital, um, we are on the north side. We're on the Maryland side, which is the pretty side. Uh, not trying to influence your decision or anything, but uh, Wildercroft it can be found at uh, wildercroftcoc.org. Uh, we also, if you're in the area, have plenty of radio shows, and if you look at the website, we've got some ways that you can listen to those radio shows, and we even have... Uh, those are on the website as well, so you can find links to those shows that we do on Friday nights and on Saturday afternoon. Brett? In Exodus chapter 33, Moses asks God in verse 18, please show me your glory, or I guess I should say he makes a request of God, please show me your glory. And in verse 20, in his response, God says, You cannot see my face, for no man shall see me and live. John reiterates that in 1 John chapter 4, verse 12, No one has seen God at any time. But then, at the end of the book of the Revelation, in chapter 22, verse 3, um, if I ever wonder what it's all about, if I ever get uh, find myself getting distracted. Um, Revelation 22, beginning verse 3, And there shall be no more curse, but the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it, and his servants shall serve him. They shall see his face, and his name shall be on their foreheads. There shall be no night there. They need no lamp nor light of the sun, for the Lord God gives them light, and they shall reign forever and ever. I, I don't know exactly what that means when it says they shall see his face, but the impression that I get is that there will, be, that there will not be a veil between the holy place and the most holy place. There will not even be the fact that God is invisible, and, mm-hmm. and we just cannot perceive him in, in, in the way that we think of sight. But we will be, a, be in the presence of the unmitigated glory of God. And that is, um, uh, I have a hard time articulating um, what, uh, what that makes me feel. Hmm. Just Thank one you. glimpse of him in glory. Hmm. Will the toil of life repay. Hmm. Amen. Hmm. Thank you, Brad. Um, do, you, do you want to share any way for people to get in touch with you? Well, of course. Uh, Brad at Collins.name. Yes, it's actually Collins.name. I'm one of those weird dot namers out there. Uh, Bradley S. Collins on Twitter. Uh, and uh, I guess I'll let Stephen uh, give you the website of the, the church where we worship. Very good. Um, I am not a naturally studious person. <laughs> I am not a naturally hardworking person. If I want to be a hard worker, I have to decide to be that. And it'll fall into that category. And so, and so I, I think I, when I began preaching, I was not as studious as I ought to be. And um, one good brother that I uh, have gleaned a lot from pressed Joshua chapter 1 and mm. verse 8 onto me. And uh, that says, this book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous and then you will have success. 
And when I think about that verse in the context of Joshua, what I am is somebody who likes to be given a job, a task Hmm. to do. I'm not much on preparation. I'm good on my feet. I I like to um, improvise and and I like to um, just get on with the business of doing. Well, here's Joshua being given uh, the sort of task that I think I would love. Um, go lead the people. Go lead them into the land. Go go conquer the land. And I think really any guy would fantasize about that sort of thing. I mean, be a military leader conquering. In fact, be a military leader where you're guaranteed success so long as you do it this way. <laughs> Sounds great. But he prefaces all of that with... You read this book every day. You think about this day and night. And so in the midst of military conquest, God says, your success is in my word. Now, if military success was in his word, how much more the winning of souls? And so this is a constant reminder to me that when I'm, I'm struggling to figure out what I need to do, here is my core. I meditate on this day and night. And God says, this is where your success is. Hmm. You come home to this. And, uh, and, and that has, that keeps me motivated. That, that verse is printed in word art by a cousin of mine and framed in my office. And I look at it every single day. Hmm. Thank you so much. Thank you all for being a part of this. Amen. Really appreciate it. Very, very much. You all made sight. Huh? Website. Oh yes. Oh yeah. Where can uh, people contact you? So you can uh, look me up uh, on Twitter or Facebook, um, and I have no idea what my Twitter handle is, but I'm sure if you look me up, Stephen Russell, um, and uh, you'll you'll be able to find me on there. Uh, the uh, website is for our congregation is pepperroadchurch.org. And uh, we do have um, a podcast that you can subscribe to for our sermons or, or Bible classes, and you can find contact information there. My personal email is Stephen D, as in Douglas, Stephen D. Russell at gmail.com. Thank you for that. And, and I, I will vouch for their podcast. Very good uh, audio editing, good quality. Um, Thanks, sometimes. Brad. Yes. <laughs> Sometimes uh, you listen to church podcasts and the audio is very, very low, very quiet. And so you're upping the stereo in your car and then you put a CD or you try to switch to music and just blares. (laughs) But, uh, you know, maybe you should just not switch to music. Maybe that's the key. Um, (laughs) But uh, go to another podcast and it blares. Yes. Yeah. 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 Well, (laughs) Either way, thank you all so much. I will have uh, their information in the show notes, if at all possible. Um, But really grateful for this time together. Um, Next time, Lord willing, we'll be getting into Genesis 15 and on. Until then, study well and be lights to his glory.
The music on this podcast is provided courtesy of Symphonia. Visit their website at symphonia.com. Walking Through the Book is created and promoted with the support of the North Columbus Church of Christ in Columbus, Mississippi. Find out more at northcolumbuschristians.com. The website of the Garden City Church of Christ in Savannah, Georgia is gardencitycoc.org.